0: Well, good morning. It is uh, so good to be together this morning. I'm grateful uh, to see each one of you and to be here with you. I am grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I'm grateful also for God's Word, for its power, and its truth, and all that it does for us. So let's pray and ask that His Spirit and His Word would do their work in us uh, as we turn and open the Scriptures together. Lord God, you are the one who shares with us your deep, deep love, and you do that in mysterious and powerful ways, even as we've heard this morning, that when there are trials and difficulties and surprises that come to us in our life that we never would have asked for, that you bring blessing and you bring your goodness through those things. We thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that uh, whatever we are facing this morning and in our lives, we'd be able to give that to you fully. Um, And Lord, uh, calm us, give us peace of mind and clarity that we'll be able to read your word now and and hear you speak to us. And Lord, we want to be people who know you and who love you and who take that and spread it freely and fully um, to those around us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we as humans, made in the image of God, possess keen rationality, the ability to make logical connections, and discern the real from the false. And these gifts allow us to make sense of this world and to live in it appropriately. Yet, utilizing these very gifts, each generation comes to recognize that things are not always as they seem. Wisdom tells us that appearances cannot always be trusted. Consider how our shared cultural stories that most of us know, that we enjoy together, reveal a fascination with narratives that turn the tables on our perceptions or our expectations. Stories about individual identity, that Mr. Darcy's true motivations, what they are in Pride and Prejudice. Luke Skywalker's origins, the identity of his father and sister. Or the nature of reality, the world behind the world in The Matrix. Or the nature of heroism, the true power rests in the whimsical hobbits in The Shire. And the fact that Wesley was only mostly dead in The Princess Bride. So it's not only literature and film and our own experiences that open our eyes to unexpected realities. God Himself dwells in and reveals a realm that we cannot understand or see on our own. Without Him revealing truth and exposing our blindness, we would be clueless to Him, to ourselves, and to the nature of the cosmos. And one of the most profound truths revealed to us is that the most profound truths must be revealed to us. One of the most profound truths revealed to us is that the most profound truths must be revealed to us. Our study in the book of Mark has shown that Jesus progressively unfolds God's eternal plan, initially known in the Law and the Prophets, And now the Messiah is further further disclosing to us the purpose of our existence and the arc of human history. So, in today's passage, in Mark 12, Jesus further pulls back the veil. He reveals more about his identity, the selfish motives of those who resist him, and the generous heart of his faithful followers. And we discover that things are not always what they seem. The full story must unfold over time, that image is not always substance, and the measurement of true value often takes a surprising turn. So let's turn to Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. And this is going to conclude our study of this chapter. And Jesus is in the temple here uh, during his last week of earthly ministry, and he's been actively engaged in dialogue with the leaders and with the crowds and with his disciples." So Mark 12, 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David Himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honors at feasts, who devour widows' houses This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We've been following in this chapter a series of dramatic interchanges between Jesus and his opponents, and it's natural and helpful to recognize the linkage between the earlier section and this one. As we studied last Sunday morning in the previous message, Jesus answers the inquiry, what is the most important commandment of all? And he responds that there are in fact two commandments that are the greatest, and both of which are grounded in a single word. So this is an astonishing moment. Actually, you take this book, over a thousand pages, And Jesus is going to say, well, there's one word uh, that signifies what I want you to to remember and to live. And what what do you think that word would be? Would it be faith, obey, self-control, trust, self-sacrifice, service? And what is the word that would sum up for God to us that we should most remember and live? And it's love. To love God wholeheartedly and unreservedly and to love others as yourself. And in this section today, Jesus illustrates what this kind of devotion is and is not. Jesus reveals more about his own identity and how God and how this God we are to love is operating in the world. And then he calls out the scribes who are failing in both their vertical and their horizontal love. And he observes a widow who's quietly demonstrating a kind of sacrificial devotion to God. And did you notice how the tables are turned in these sections? The educated and the influential fail, while a fringe individual, a woman without social standing or means, possesses a love of surpassing and surprising value. So let's walk through these three temple teachings, and we will see that Jesus reveals his identity, and then the hypocrisy, hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and then an example of true generosity. So first, Jesus reveals his identity starting in verse 35. He had concluded the previous section in verse 34 by saying this, Mark says, And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus' profound wisdom, his spiritual authority, and the popularity among the crowds silenced his critics. And now in verse 35, it is time for Jesus to make his own inquiry. He asks, how can the scribes say that Christ, the Christ, is the son of David? In Greek, the word Christos, and in Hebrew, the word Messiah, are terms for the same word, and both mean the anointed one. And this title is from ancient times, because when a man was made king, he was anointed with oil. So Christos, Christ, and Messiah both refer to God's anointed king, the great one who's to come from God to save his people. Now, the context for these questions over the Messiah's Davidic lineage concerns the fervor and the expectation of a restored kingdom of that time, of national deliverance for the Jewish people, free of Roman control and oppression. And this is evident in Mark 11, when the people shout as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, "'Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David.'" Jesus is asking, how or in what sense is God's anointed king the son of David? Now, the scribes were correct to say that the Messiah would be born in David's line. 2 Samuel 7 contains the prophetic promise that God would raise up from David's offspring a king who would reign in justice, and righteousness forever. And then Jesus refers to Psalm 110 in which David writes, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your feet until I put your enemies under your feet." So the scribes were correct in thinking that Psalm 110 refers to the Messiah. And then all of this begs the question. This is why Jesus is setting all of this up. The question is, how could the great king David refer to his son as his Lord? because the title son suggests some type of subordination and inferiority. This is upside down unless the son is somehow greater than the father. In other words, things are not evidently as they seem. David refers to the Messiah as his lord or his master to affirm his superior status or lordship. He is distinguishing between his own earthly political sovereignty and the higher sovereignty assigned to the Messiah. The Christ, the Messiah, is not only the son of David, he is also David's Lord. This psalm positions the Messiah at God's right hand, the position of highest honor. So from this transcendent status, he is doing more than simply restoring the sovereignty of Israel. He will establish a wholly different kingdom, which is situated at God's right hand. The political nationalistic view of the messianic mission held by the scribes missed the mark for the Messiah. If the Messiah is simply more than a new David, what is his identity? Well, from from the perspective of Mark's theology, he is not only David's son, he is God's son. From his opening statement in chapter one, Mark declares, this is the first sentence of the book of Mark, from the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And this is followed throughout the book by various witnesses to this identity recorded in the Gospel. The Father proclaims, God the Father proclaims Jesus to be his beloved son, and then demons, the high priest, and eventually the centurion at the cross all say these words that he's the Son of God. Well, what implication does this hold for us? Well, the divine sonship and the lordship of Jesus means that his followers uniquely recognize Jesus' ultimate authority. We are willing and responsible to not bow down to any lesser authorities or pretenders to his throne. And Christians have paid for this unwavering conviction with loss of jobs and home and relationships and family. They faced imprisonment and even execution through the centuries. And this is still happening around the world today with alarming regularity with believers who are just like you and me. But now they find themselves in the brutal and inescapable path of persecution. So we are called to remember and to live in light of Jesus' promise in Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So our response in this world today is to pray for those who are persecuted around the world, to give support in any way that we can to them. There are many Christian ministries and organizations um, that do that. And then in your own soul, build courage, prepare, and know that if these kinds of things come to your doorstep, to our life at some point, And we have to draw a line and make a stand for the gospel and for the word that we are prepared and we're ready in, God's, in the power of God's spirit to do such a thing. A second implication is to not allow personal expectations or desires to define God or his work in this world if they conflict with the word. The scribes and the popular Jewish opinion misconstrued God's eternal plan. Desperate for political upheaval and for national resurgence, they shaped the Messiah into a savior of their own making. The human heart is prone to create a God or aspects of him in our own image. This is not confined to political concerns like the Jews faced in Jesus' time, but to all kinds of daily issues and motivations and relationships that we face. So let's trust in the Lord and anchor ourselves as he's revealed himself in the Bible and discard any self-serving notion that we would have or concoct about who God is or what he's doing. Next, Jesus continues his teaching in the temple, and he reveals for us the hypocrisy of some of the religious leaders that surrounded him. After raising a question about the scribes' teaching, he issues a scathing warning, beware of the scribes. This episode about the experts in the law and the next one concerning a widow are parallel and contrasting descriptions. They represent a negative and positive example of loving God and loving others. Inherent in Jesus' accusations and his condemnation of the scribes is the fact that their careful study and their knowledge of the law should have yielded them the conviction that God alone deserves the praise of men. Yet their expertise did not spare them the spiritual blindness of self-exaltation. And this helps explain why Matthew in his 23rd chapter about this same situation devoted 36 verses about Jesus' discourse in the temple condemning the scribes and the Pharisees. And there in Matthew 23, Jesus declares, whoever exalts himself will be humbled And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What are Jesus' charges here against these learned and revered men? He warns against their pride, their greed, and their corruption, all seen in their attraction to high social standing. Jesus names four examples of a desire for reputation. Long robes that they wore displayed their status as representatives of God. Greetings in the marketplace meant that in social settings... At that time, if a lesser person came and across or met someone of higher social standing, like this, in terms of being a religious leader, they would greet them with special honorific terms master, rabbi, father. The most important seats in the synagogue were at the front. There was a bench, so it would be like this, but there would be a bench right up here facing the congregation, and then the senior elders or teachers or honored guests would sit there, and everyone would have their eyes upon those people who were seated at the front. And then feasts or banquets were traditionally organized according to a strict hierarchy. So if you have a big table or tables, the host is here or hostess is here, and to the right is the guest of highest honor. To the left is number two, and then you would just go down, right, left, right, left, right, left, from the top to the bottom of most-honored to least-honored. Meaning your social standing was communicated there without anyone saying a word. And by the way, where did Jesus encourage his followers to sit at that kind of place at the end. Take, take a seat of lower honor initially. This seeking of prominence and deference, to be treated better and different, meant that the scribes were displacing God's honor for their own. Additionally, the scribes were preying on the most vulnerable. Widows and fatherless children were among the most defenseless at this time, and the charge is that these scribes were devouring widows' houses, most likely referring to taking advantage of the hospitality and generosity of these people of limited means. Interestingly, scribes were not permitted to receive payment for their profession. So they lived primarily off of subsidies. And offering them hospitality and support was strongly encouraged. And it seems that some of the scribes imposed themselves on the generosity of widows to their own detriment. And what is upside down here? Self-serving leaders are masquerading as the servants of God. In other words, it's not what it seems. Jesus reveals that what appears on the surface is incongruent with a life that is underneath, a lack of integrity. Walk through the marketplace, recline at a banquet, attend the synagogue, and those receiving honor today are earning themselves condemnation later. This echoes Jesus' words, his warning in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The issue is the heart. The giving and receiving of honor is not the problem. The scriptures command us to give honor to whom honor is due. The invisible motivation of the person being honored is the issue. Christian leaders who receive recognition, honor, or attention for the role or office are not to treat it, who need to treat it as a gift, as an instrument, as an opportunity by which to give honor and praise to God and to serve others. Thus, they're fulfilling the two greatest commands to love God and love others. The Apostle Paul is an exemplary model in this regard. In Philippians 3, he regards himself, he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But these qualities that would yield him greetings in the marketplace and spots of respect in the synagogue and at banquets, he declared to be lost for him in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That those, those, that's just rubbish, that kind of reputation, the need for that reputation. It's knowing Christ and his grace to salvation and fellowship of the Spirit and with his sufferings that anchor Paul's identity. Paul was a leader among that very group, the Pharisees, that Jesus confronted. Yet his focus is off his earned reputation and the attention garnered by his righteous life. Rather than absorbing the honor for himself, he gladly acknowledges the source. So, if you were a scribe in the temple, and you heard these accusations coming from this rabbi Jesus to you, how would you respond? The embodiment of grace and truth stood before the scribes. He accurately diagnosed their spiritual sickness, and yet they determined to silence him at any cost to even murder him. And is there an application for us here in Jesus' warning? Well, there is, because he was addressing a specific leadership group at the time, but those principles remain true across the centuries. So there's a word for us, any of us who might be tempted to serve or lead in the church for what we can get out of it rather than what we can put into it. The road to Christian service is littered with potholes and I've been made aware of this one in my own heart. So whenever a person is visible and recognized for providing spiritual leadership, it creates an interesting set of dynamics. In my calling, it takes the form of standing in front of gatherings like this and speaking or teaching, leading, praying. For others, it's being up here on a Sunday morning, leading in music. Praying. Uh, some of us lead a youth small group or we teach at a women's ministry. We speak up in the work at, workplace or with our neighbors. We teach Sunday school. Or you might be one of those people who finds yourself the prayer, the designated prayer at extended family events. There's all kinds of pl- roles and responsibilities that we take. And they bring with them the possibility of accruing goodness and maturity to myself, in greater measure than I actually possess. The attention and respect can sometimes have the subtle corrupting effect of elevating self and creating a false hierarchy of spiritual pride. For those of us who receive attention or thanks for exercising leadership or expressing our gifts publicly, let's be grateful and express appreciation. But the honor doesn't ultimately land on us as the final recipient. In our hearts and in our words, we will gladly extend it to the Lord. So the scribes could wear their long robes, they could give prayers, they could receive greetings in the marketplace, and they could still honor the Lord if their hearts were humble and grateful and if they were intent on loving their neighbor as themselves. Well, now we come to the third and final encounter in the temple, And this is one in which Jesus reveals true generosity. After concluding his warning about the scribes, we learn in verse 41 that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. This is just an incredible, intriguing image, right? He's embroiled in public debate and in teaching. He's the epicenter of controversy, And he goes and sits down in the temple and engages in people watching. And what is it that he observes? A startling study in contrast. The devotion of a seemingly insignificant woman is counter to the greed and hard heartedness of the scribes who are just called out by Jesus. This scene is in front of 13 collection boxes that were there in the temple. This part of the temple is called called the Court of Women. And at that place, there were something called shofar chests. So the shofar is the ram's horn that is a trumpet. So there's 13 of those made out of metal that were lined across there. Uh, And the top was small, and it was like a trumpet. At the bottom would be the bell. And you would come, and you would drop your coins into the small part uh, so no one could reach down and steal anything. And, of course, there's no bills. There's no paper money. Everything is in coins. So any person who would come and would drop their coin or coins into that metal trumpet, what are you, what's going to happen? Clink, 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 clink. You're going to hear the sound of a big coin or a small coin. You're going to be able to tell by the sound what kind of coin it is and how many this person is dropping in to one of those trumpets. Now the temple contained vast amounts of wealth because the citizens, there were dues, there were taxes, and then voluntary donations, and all kinds of valuable objects were also brought to the temple. And keep in mind that this is Passover season. The regular population of 50,000 people in Jerusalem swelled with an influx of some 200,000 pilgrims who were coming to honor the Passover. So people of considerable influence and substantial wealth were moving among these huge crowds because of the Passover there in the temple. And Mark records, there were many rich people who put in large sums. And then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. The Greek word for this coin literally means a thin one. So when she dropped it in, everybody knew what it was. Who was standing around. It was actually the smallest coin in circulation at that time in Palestine. And did you notice that she put in two coins into the shofar chest? I mean, she only had two, and she could have, you know, put in one and kept the other, but she, she put in both of, both of those coins. And what was Jesus' response to this scene? He calls his disciples, and he emphasizes the value of what he's about to tell them, he says, Truly, I say to you, and they hear this astounding assessment. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. More? Her meager offering is the largest. Everything about this woman shouts less. The one with less attention, less prestige, less influence, less means, and the smallest offering is declared to have given more than anyone. Jesus doesn't leave his friends confused about his logic. He says that the rich contributed out of their abundance, while the widow gave out of her poverty, all that she had to live on. Mark juxtaposes this faithful widow with the rich young ruler that we read about back in chapter 10, who refused to part with his wealth when asked to reveal his deepest allegiance. Interestingly, we don't know if Jesus ever spoke with the widow, whether he commended her for her sacrifice or let her know that her tiny contribution was actually more than what any rich person gave that day. So we don't know what her response or knowledge of the situation is. So how many gifts have been offered in secret, which the Lord values as much or as many or as more but that will not be accounted for or revealed until eternity. I remember in business school uh, at IU, learning from one of my least favorite classes, the generally accepted accounting principles. That's one of the things that you study in business school. Generally accepted accounting principles. Well, when it comes to divine accounting, there's a distinct set of accounting principles. And here's three of them. Our giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. This is, this is flipped over, isn't it, right? The size of the gift doesn't matter as much as the cost to the giver. Not the amount of the gift, but the sacrifice. Real generosity gives until it hurts. A second principle our giving is measured by proportion, not by ad- addition. So, a two-pence gift out of two pence is a factor of one. A gift of 1,000 out of 10,000 is a factor of one-tenth. And then third, our giving is always in the sight of Jesus Christ. His assessment, His accounting principles are the ones that matter. Once again, the Lord enters our world and inverts our sensibilities turning on its head how we naturally appraise the value of our monetary offerings to Him. As unsettling as this might be, we do well to recognize that He's turning an upside-down world right-side-up. And what does one do when you realize that the Creator God reaches a different conclusion than you do? Whom do you trust? Him or yourself? Part of wisdom is learning when to not to trust yourself in order to lean on the Lord's understanding. Understanding Jesus' accounting methods begins with the biblical concept of stewardship. God's the originator and the owner of all things. A few of them are placed in our individual care and responsibility. We're the stewards of those things granted to us. This includes the gift of my body, my relationships, my spouse or children if I have them, my abilities, my material things and opportunities. These are all given to me. And then I will give account for how and what I did with them. And the glorious freedom in this arrangement is since they came from him um, and more will be coming and he is generous and kind and has my best interest in mind, I don't need to hoard these things. I hold them loosely because they've been graciously given to me. The disciples in the early church evidently embraced this teaching. Barnabas in Acts 4 sells a field that he owns and then gives all those proceeds to the apostles to be shared among other believers. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonian churches, though impoverished, give a generous gift to struggling churches in Jerusalem. And so what implications do we find for us in this text? Well, first of all, this, wi- this widow is a model of discipleship. She gave all that she had. Jesus invited his disciples to say, come, follow me. And they did that, and they called him master. They called him Lord. They were expected to give up their lives for his sake. And as I've studied this passage, uh, my own failure to possess a generous heart uh, has hit home, which is sad, but it's also helpful, right, when you learn things about yourself. I realize that at times I easily construct a line of defense against absolute surrender. And what wells up inside of me is questions and justifications or just simply to ignore it all As a particular need or opportunity to give to a ministry or to a person, to a situation, when that's brought to my attention, self-serving questions and thoughts sometimes surface. Things like, would anyone really expect me to be that sacrificial? I mean, Whatever that amount of sacrifice would be, is, would anyone expect that, really? I can inventory a quick list of the ways I've been generous in the past. I consider all the obligations and future needs of my family and thoughts of others' needs begin to fade. Knowing that finances are a private matter in our culture, for the most part, no one's ever going to know what I have done in response to this situation. So without accountability, I'm tempted to gather my resources and my assets, mainly for myself and for my people. I can give of my time, of my words, of my, even my emotions, but my money, my money supply is much more limited, or it feels much more limited and precious, because when a dollar has gone, it's gone. And then, how do I assess if someone actually deserves My my sacrificial gift. And and how much is enough? So, what is my violation in all that grasping and self-protection? Well, it's not loving my neighbor as myself. And perhaps I'm not alone in some of these objections, but I have to ask myself, is it odd that Jesus asks us to have this kind of radical discipleship, to be willing to abandon everything for him, Well, as we read in Mark 12, one realizes that just in a couple of days, which is recorded in Mark 14, Jesus is going to gather his disciples, recline at the Passover meal. He's going to hold up a wine glass and declare, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And what he asks us to do, he has already done. Abandon self-interest and self-protection and entrust oneself to the Father. He established that path to life. He established that the path to life is through surrender. It's actually through death. He blazed the trail that this widow has now traversed. And we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 8-9, for your sake, Jesus became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so we know fully well As Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here's the question for us this morning. Are there specific ways the Lord desires you to express the beauty and joy of absolute surrender by choosing to be generous? Are there specific ways that the Lord desires for you to express the beauty and joy of absolute surrender by choosing to be generous? And not just you individually, if you're married, it could be your spouse, your children, your family, it could be your small group. All of you might address ways to pick up an opportunity as well. And I do want you to know that uh, starting next week, we're going to start a summer series here on Sunday mornings, and the, and the series is going to be on generosity. And we're going to be looking at texts that, ex- that uh, really teach us about a generosity of spirit, generosity of the mind, generosity of time, generosity of our words, and so forth. But to draw this to a close this morning, these three episodes in the temple, at the twilight of Jesus' ministry, point to him turning an upside-down world, right-side-up. A world that needed to love the Lord fully and their neighbors as themselves. Now, an alarming element in all these accounts is human blindness. Those surrounding Jesus operated in the world by too often trusting their intuition and what they saw. But sometimes this is off. Things are different than they seem. And Jesus revealed this in three areas. God was intent to establish a spiritual kingdom for all nations in which citizens belong by faith in Jesus, not by bloodlines. It was to be a revolution of love and righteous living empowered by the Holy Spirit. Also, true spiritual leadership is deeper than clothing and public prayers and respectful greetings and seats of honor. Those externals can sometimes mask pride or greed or abuse of power. And then lastly, the kind of generosity that most pleases the Lord is sacrificial, wholehearted, and cannot be measured by quantity alone. These last teachings in the temple usher in the most profound tragedy in human history. The unjust execution of the innocent son of God. But the Lord turned that right side up too. For it became our greatest triumph. For your sake, Jesus became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Lord, with uh, Gratitude, we want to express to you the surprising effects that you have on this world and upon our lives. We could not know you if you did not show yourself to us. We could not know truth if you did not reveal it. We could not know all the ways that we are off on the side where we shouldn't be if you did not tell us otherwise. So Lord Jesus, teach us The meaning of generosity as you have shown it to us. Give us humility and meekness when we lead and Lord we pray that we would honor you in all things and that we would uh, love you with all of who we are and we extend that to other people as well. Through your name we pray. Amen.